From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Whenever I fly in a small plane in Alaska, I think how easy it would be to disappear if the plane went down. It could crash into a mountain in deep snow in the winter and remain there until spring, when perhaps someone would see it. A plane could fall into a deep canyon covered by thick brush in the summer, never to be seen again, or maybe spotted a decade later by adventurous hikers. If the plane landed or slid into the ocean, it would sink, perhaps giving up remnants of fabric to float to shore. Even with all the modern tracking and location technology, mysterious plane disappearances continue to occur in Alaska. As I soar high above Kodiak Island's mountains, I feel certain I would never live through a crash. History proves me wrong, though. People survive plane wrecks all the time in Alaska. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. Airplanes first disappeared in Alaska as soon as they glided over the mountains, glaciers, oceans, tundra, and forests here. The rugged ocean and landscape of Alaska offer an abundance of places for a plane to vanish. Over the years, many planes have gone missing in Alaska. But not all the outcomes were bad, especially in the early years of aviation in the territory. Often days or even weeks after a plane disappeared in a remote region and the pilot was assumed dead, he would wander out of the brush and into a village. Such was the case with Noel Wien in 1925 when he was flying to Fairbanks from the village of Wiseman. When strong winds blew him off course and he ran out of gas, he was forced to land on a sandbar. He had to walk 40 miles back to civilization and ford two rivers, requiring him to build a raft each time. He shot rabbits for food and slogged through the muskeg. After the ordeal was over, the entry in his logbook simply read, Forced down, gas and oil out, walked 40 miles back. For Ween, his adventure was just another day at the office. The most incredible story of a lost pilot returning from the dead is the ordeal of Lieutenant Leon Crane. On December 21, 1943, a five-man Army Air Corps crew flying a B-24 Liberator took off from Ladd Army Airfield in Fairbanks, Alaska. Their mission was to conduct high-altitude propeller feathering tests on the Liberator, a heavy bomber used by the American and Allied forces during World War II. The pilot in command of the flight was 2nd Lieutenant Harold Hoskins. 
Leon Crane was the co-pilot. While climbing through 23,000 feet, the Liberator's number one engine failed, and the plane began to spin and rapidly descend. Hoskins and Crane fought to level the spiraling aircraft, but when Hoskins determined there was nothing they could do, he ordered his crew to bail out of the plane. The Liberator spun out of control while heavy winds battered it. The alarm to abandon ship blared, and the crew of five men struggled to don parachutes and bail out of what was now a depth trap. Lieutenant Crane secured a parachute and jumped from the bomb bay doors. The disaster occurred so quickly that no one had a chance to send a radio distress call. Crane noted the open parachute of Chief Master Sergeant Richard Pompeo and watched him float over a mountain range approximately one mile away. The rest of the crew failed to abandon the aircraft before it crashed into a mountain. Crane later recalled the biting cold as he floated toward the ground and the huge blob of red flame when his plane struck the mountainside. Crane landed in the snow above the bank of a frozen river where the temperature hovered below minus 40 degrees. He yelled to the other members of his flight crew, but no one answered. Crane wore his heavy flight suit and mucklucks and could use his parachute for a sleeping bag, but he had pulled off his mittens on the plane so he could don his parachute, and he knew his unprotected fingers would freeze in minutes in this weather. He held his hands in his armpits to keep them warm. He had two packs of matches and a knife on him, but Leon Crane was not a wilderness man. He had been camping only once in his life when he was a boy in Philadelphia, and he knew any mistake in the frozen interior of Alaska could prove deadly. He quickly gathered twigs and wood to start a fire. He had only 40 matches, and he began to panic when the kindling would not light. Then he remembered a letter he'd stuffed in the pocket of his parka. He held the match to the paper, and it ignited. He carefully stoked the fire until it grew in size and warmth. Crane had no idea where he was or where he would find human habitation. He decided he should stay near the plane's wreckage, which had crashed on the mountain above him. He used branches to form a large SOS in the snow, thinking when searchers flew over, they would surely see it. Crane would later learn that the plane crashed near the headwaters of the Charlie River, a tributary of the Yukon. The next morning, Crane spotted the frozen river below him, and he hiked along it until he found a good camping spot. He found an area in the river where a small stream of water bubbled over the ice and he greedily drank from it. Crane had no food with him, so he tried to kill one of the many red squirrels that chattered and scampered around him in the trees. He used a driftwood club, a spear, a bow and arrow made from branches, and a slingshot, but no matter what weapon he tried, he could not kill a squirrel. Crane stayed at his camping spot for nine days, but without food, he grew weak, and he knew he would die if he did not find food and shelter. The following day, at dawn, he began to walk downriver. He pushed through the deep snow, stumbling often. He was so exhausted he wanted to stop and give up, 
but he forced himself to keep walking. As daylight ebbed, he saw a small cabin in the distance. Crane was surprised and grateful when he found the cabin stocked with food. There were sacks of sugar and raisins, cans of cocoa and dried milk sat on the table, and under a tarp he found four 40-pound bags filled with rice, flour, sugar, dried beef, and beans. He stuffed handfuls of raisins in his mouth and then lit the stove and made hot cocoa. He found warm clothes and mittens in the cabin. He had a warm place to sleep and plenty of food to last a while. He found a calendar and determined the date was December 30th. He knew he needed to rest at the cabin to regain his strength. He hoped the cabin was near a town or a small settlement, but he saw no other signs of human habitation when he hiked along the river. Crane thought he had enough food to last a month and then he would continue downriver in search of a town or someone to help him. He found a 22 caliber rifle and ammunition in the cabin, and he shot squirrels and ptarmigan for meat. He was lonely, but he fought off depression and focused on surviving. He stayed in the cabin until February 12th. Crane made a crude sled and loaded it with supplies, but the sled proved to be too heavy for the river ice, which was beginning to thin in spots. When he fell through the ice, he nearly panicked, and he knew he needed to stop, build a fire, and dry his clothes. He decided the sled was too bulky and heavy to pull through the snow and ice, so he fashioned a shoulder pack and thinned his supplies to 50 pounds. Crane continued to hike downstream, and after two weeks, on March 10th, he came across an area that looked like a crude landing strip. He excitedly continued and found a dog sled trail. He followed the trail for two hours until he saw a cabin on the far side of the river. He heard dogs barking at the cabin, and he began to yell. A man peered out of the cabin door, and Crane yelled, I'm Lieutenant Crane of the U.S. Army. I've been in a little trouble. The cabin belonged to trapper Albert Ames and his family, and it was located near where the Charlie River flows into the Yukon. When Crane relayed his harrowing adventure to the Ames family, Albert calculated that Crane had walked nearly 120 miles from where he landed after bailing out of the plane to the Ames family's cabin. Crane stayed with the Ames family for three days, and then a bush pilot picked him up and returned him to Ladd Army Airfield. His fellow soldiers were shocked to hear he was still alive and hailed him as a hero. Leon Crane had no cold-weather survival training, but he used his wits to remain calm and survive in a frigid, hostile environment. Crane's wilderness adventure lasted 84 days. Eventually, searchers found the crash site and the remains of the three men who never made it out of the plane. No one has ever located any sign of Chief Master Sergeant Richard Pompeo, who also parachuted from the plane.
Ben Eilson and Russ Merrill both survived airplane mishaps in 1927 and 1928, respectively. Merrill and Eilson were famous early aviators in the history of Alaska. Merrill Field in Anchorage, the first airport in Anchorage and now a large airport for private planes, was named after Russ Merrill. And Eilson Air Force Base near Fairbanks was named after Carl Ben Eilson. In 1927, Eilson and polar explorer George Hubert Wilkins were flying 100 miles northeast of Barrow when weather forced them to land on the sea ice. The men hiked for two weeks to reach the fur trading post of Beachy Point. In 1928, Russ Merrill and his passengers walked three weeks before they were rescued from the tundra north of Wainwright. A storm had forced Merrill to land on the boggy tundra. Merrill and Eilson were not as lucky in 1929. On September 16th of that year, Russ Merrill's plane disappeared while flying from Anchorage to Bear Creek Mine at Nyack near Bethel. Pilots searched for his plane over the Alaska Range and along the coast of the Gulf of Alaska. Ben Eilson flew 3,000 miles in the first three days to search for his fellow aviator. And the U.S. Coast Guard and private ships searched for the missing plane at sea. On October 20th, a small piece of fabric that had been found on a beach three weeks earlier finally made its way to the searchers. Merrill's mechanic identified it as a patch on the fabric covering of Merrill's plane. The mechanic recognized the patch because he had been the one to install it. Searchers guessed Merrill had been forced, for some reason, to land on the water in Cook Inlet and had died before he could reach shore. He probably died the day he disappeared. Eilson had to break away from the search for Merrill to rescue furs and crewmen from the Nanuk, an ice-bound ship off the coast of Siberia. On November 9th, he and his mechanic, Earl Borland, disappeared on a flight to the Nanuk. An extensive search ensued, and the plane was finally sighted in January the following year off the coast of Siberia. The bodies of Eilson and Borland were found three weeks later, buried in the snow and ice. As with Eilson's plane, missing aircraft are often found, and sometimes the wreckage is located years after the plane and its passengers disappeared. On August 21, 1958, Clarence Rode, the Alaska Regional Director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, piloted a Grumman Goose with the tail number N270. The two passengers on the plane were Stanley Fredrickson, a fellow Fish and Wildlife agent, and Rode's son Jack. Rode landed at Peters Lake, and the scientist there said his intended destination was a fish and wildlife supplies cache at Porcupine Lake. The plane was last seen flying over Arctic Lake shortly after noon. When the plane was overdue returning to Fairbanks, a huge search and rescue effort was launched. The Air Force searched for a month, and the Fish and Wildlife Service continued to search for two and one-half months longer but no sign of the plane was spotted. 
21 years after the Grumman Goose piloted by Clarence Road disappeared, on August 26, 1979, hikers in the Brooks Mountain Range, 50 miles northwest of Arctic Village, stumbled upon the crash site. A member of the hiking party called the Federal Aviation Administration to report the wreckage in a steep area at an altitude of 6,000 feet. Due to the poor weather, the recovery party did not reach the wreckage until August 31st. They recovered the remains of the three individuals, which were flown to the Fairbanks coroner's office for identification before being returned to the next of kin. Let me take a quick break. Those of you who have listened to my podcast for a while know who I am and what I do. But for you newer listeners, I would like to tell you a little bit more about myself. In addition to writing and podcasting true crime stories, I write Alaska wilderness mystery novels. I'm looking forward to the release of my fifth novel sometime this winter. The plot of my second novel, Murder Over Kodiak, fits this podcast episode because in my book, a plane explodes over Kodiak Island and the pieces nearly disappear in the thick vegetation. I enjoy writing novels set in the rugged landscape of Kodiak, where the characters must not only find a murderer, but also battle the hostile environment and cast a weary eye on the woods for huge brown bears. I study true crimes and mysteries in Alaska to inspire my plots. And as you will hear in the next story about Ian McIntosh, there's no lack of strange stories from the last frontier. If you would like to know more about my books, check out my podcast website or look at my main website at robinbearfield.com. You can also search for my name on Amazon. And now, back to the story. A plane disappeared near Kodiak Island on the evening of July 7, 1979. Did it crash, or did the passengers fake the wreck so they could escape? Ian McIntosh, one of the passengers, was a former British Royal Navy officer and probably an ex-spy for Britain during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. In the 1970s, McIntosh wrote a British TV series about life aboard a fictional frigate, the HMS Hero. The series, developed with the blessing of the Royal Navy, became extremely popular in England. In the late 1970s, McIntosh wrote The Sandbaggers, a TV drama the New York Times and many other critics called the best and most authentic TV spy series of all time. Instead of coming across glitzy and high-tech like James Bond, the Sandbaggers had a gritty, dark feel to it. On July 7, 1979, Graham Barber, an experienced British Airways pilot, rented a single-engine Raleigh 235 airplane in Anchorage. After a test flight, Barber, his friend McIntosh, and McIntosh's girlfriend, Susan Insole, 
flew toward Kodiak. The weather that evening was clear, but very windy in Kodiak. Barber sent out a distress signal at approximately 5.45 p.m. while flying north, northeast of Kodiak Island. The air traffic controller at the Kodiak airport relayed the call to the U.S. Coast Guard, and the searchers were in the air in 10 minutes and over the last known coordinates of McIntosh's plane in 30 minutes, but they saw no sign of an aircraft. The search continued for three days, but neither the plane nor its passengers were ever found. If this had been any other plane with any other passengers, the incident would have been noted as tragic, but unfortunately all too common. Controversy swirled around the disappearance of Ian McIntosh, though. Was he a double agent for the Russians during the Cold War? And did he set up his disappearance to defect to the Soviet Union? Or was he exposed as a British spy and now going into hiding from either the KGB or a terrorist organization such as Black September? Ian's brother, Lowry, gave a frank interview about his brother, categorizing Ian as sometimes ruthless but never disloyal to Great Britain. However, Lowry thought it was possible Ian went underground and said the last time he spoke to Ian, he got the impression Ian was telling him goodbye. After Ian's disappearance, Lowry said Ian's ex-father-in-law, an admiral in the Royal Navy, was blocked when he tried to learn more about Ian's disappearance. He was told not to ask questions. The type of aircraft Barbara chose to rent for the trip to Kodiak adds even more intrigue to this mystery. A Raleigh 235 does not have doors, but instead employs a canopy. If the plane landed right side up on the water, its occupants could slide back the top and exit the aircraft. This model of aircraft is sometimes referred to as a 10 parachute because it is capable of slow, controlled flight, even without power. According to the Anchorage pilot who checked out Graham Barber in the Raleigh, Barber requested to practice power-off stalls during his familiarization with the plane. Ian's brother Lowry found the choice of airplane curious because he remembers his brother telling him the flying conditions in Alaska could be so dangerous he would never fly there in anything other than a twin-engine plane. Did Graham Barber land the Raleigh on the ocean? And did he, Susan Insull, and Ian McIntosh go into hiding? If they did, the U.S. Coast Guard must have been involved in the plot, because it is unlikely three individuals could have boarded another plane or boat and then disappeared in the short time it took for the Coast Guard to arrive on site. Conflicting information exists about sea conditions the day the plane disappeared. One report lists 40-foot seas in the area, making it impossible for a plane to land on the ocean. On the other hand, the air traffic controller at the Kodiak airport said it would have been possible to land safely on the ocean on the evening of July 7, 1979. We may never know what happened to Ian McIntosh, Graham Barber, and Susan Insull, but no piece of the airplane has ever been found.
planes and instrumentation have gotten safer over the years. I can't imagine early pilots flying in open cockpits in below zero temperatures in Alaska in the winter. A small windshield was all they had to protect themselves. Not only are planes more comfortable now, but pilots and charter companies must adhere to rigid safety regulations, and planes undergo inspection every hundred hours by a certified aircraft mechanic. Airplanes must have proper safety equipment and fly with only the amount of weight that particular aircraft is certified to carry. In 1973, Congress passed a law requiring every U.S. registered civil aircraft to be equipped with an ELT, or an Emergency Locator Transmitter. On impact, an ELT transmits a signal to a satellite, sending the exact location of the downed aircraft. Other, newer technologies make keeping track of a plane, its pilot, and passengers even easier. SpiderTracks, a satellite system, tracks a plane's location, altitude, and airspeed at all times. Furthermore, anyone can own and carry a relatively inexpensive personal locator beacon. These small devices, when activated, also send a distress message to a satellite. Personal messaging systems are a bit more sophisticated and allow a pilot or passengers to call for help by satellite-linked text messages. Unfortunately, though, despite this amazing technology, planes still disappear in Alaska. When a group of former California iron workers and some of their wives planned a fishing trip to Alaska at a remote lodge, they dreamed of adventure, not disaster. The group traveled to Sitka on Baranoff Island in southeastern Alaska, and from there they flew by float plane to Baranoff Warm Springs Lodge, a small fishing lodge located on the opposite side of the island from the town of Sitka. When the weather is good, the flight from Sitka to Warm Springs Bay, only 20 miles to the east, is a simple 12-minute hop over the 5,000-foot mountains running down the spine of the island. Baranoff Island is not known for its good weather, though. Rain and fog are the norm in September, and when pilots cannot see the tops of the mountains, they must fly a 100-mile, 50-minute circuitous route around the northern half of the island, following one of two paths. Both routes skirt the north end of the island, but one path is slightly shorter because it cuts overland through a low pass at one point. If the pass isn't open, though, the pilot must take the longer route around the entire north end of the island. On September 20, 2004, the group of friends gathered at Harris Aircraft Services in Sitka. They divided into three groups because only four to five people plus gear would fit on each plane. The weather was not good. It was rainy, windy, and the visibility was three miles or less in places on the route from Sitka to Warm Springs. The first plane left at 9.30 a.m. and followed the first path, cutting through the low pass to save time. 
The second plane, piloted by 25-year-old Eric Johnson and carrying Joe Murphy of Bremerton, Washington, his twin brother Jim Murphy from Squim, Washington, Jerry Balmer of Auburn, California, and Lloyd Koenig from Pleasanton, California, departed Sitka at 1035. No one knew which route Eric planned to fly on his way to Warm Springs Lodge. When the first plane returned to Sitka, it was afternoon, and the dispatcher informed the pilot that the second plane still had not arrived at Warm Springs Lodge. The pilot of the first plane loaded the rest of the party headed to the lodge and flew back to Warm Springs, keeping a close lookout for the plane. He flew one route on his way to the lodge and the other route on his way back to Sitka. He saw no sign of the plane on either route. At 1.30 p.m., a representative from Harris Aircraft Services notified the Coast Guard that Beaver N712TS was overdue. The Coast Guard, the Civil Air Patrol, and Harris Air searched the area between Sitka and Warm Springs Bay for the next nine days, but no trace of N712TS was ever found. The only clues to its fate were a report of a low-flying aircraft near Emmons Island, 35 miles north of the Sitka, between 10.30 a.m. and 11.30 a.m., and a claim by a woman who said she heard a very loud, unusual noise near Hainas Bay early the same afternoon. Although the pilot was young, he'd been flying since he was 18 and was an experienced beaver pilot. He'd called the weather service several times on the morning of the accident, requesting weather updates in the area. Perhaps he was hesitant about flying in marginal weather, or maybe he was always cautious and vigilant about the weather conditions. Unless some part of the missing airplane is eventually found, the pilot's family and the families of the four passengers must live with the pain of never knowing what happened to their loved ones. On August 21, 2010, a de Havilland Beaver carrying a pilot and three National Park employees departed Swick Shack Lagoon for a short flight over the mountains of Katmai National Park on its way to the town of King Salmon. The pilot was Marco Aletto, and the Park Service employees were Mason McLeod and brothers Neil and Seth Spradlin. The plane did not arrive in King Salmon, and the ELT did not transmit the location of a crash site, so a search ensued. Government and private aircraft covered 60,000 miles searching the vast Katmai National Park. The Park Service estimated the effort cost nearly $1 million, but no sign of the plane was found in the park. On September 3rd, the Park Service scaled back the search. Then in late September, five weeks after the plane went missing, small pieces of the float plane washed up along a rugged stretch of coastline. Searchers had covered this area dozens of times in the preceding weeks. On September 9, 2013, Alan Foster, a professional charter pilot with more than 9,000 hours of flight time, was flying his recently purchased PA-32-360 airplane from Atlanta to Anchorage. 
He was only 360 miles from home when he landed in the village of Yakutat, Alaska, to refuel. After he departed Yakutat, he called Juno Flight Service for a weather update, telling them he would stay in Cordova if the weather wasn't good enough to make it to Anchorage. Eighteen minutes later, radar showed a transponder target confirmed as Foster's plane at 1,100 feet. The plane was never seen again. And despite an extensive search, no sign of Foster or his plane has been found to this date. One of the problems with searching for Foster was no ELT beacon associated with his aircraft had ever been registered. Perhaps this was something he planned to do when he returned home to Anchorage. I remind myself when I fly high over the mountains of Kodiak Island that small plane travel is safe, and the pilot knows what he's doing. Still, I can't avoid wondering, what if the plane went down? Would I and my companion survive a crash landing on a snow-covered mountain? Or would the plane slide down into the forest and vanish? Even with all the modern tracking and location technology, mysterious plane disappearances continue to occur in Alaska. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about the Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the last frontier.